Good morning, New Hope. So glad that you're here this morning with us in person. Thanks for coming out. If you're online with us, a special welcome. Welcome into the house of New Hope here. We are here. We're going to be starting this new series over this next six weeks called Joyful. And we will be going through the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bible, you can open to Philippians. If you don't have your Bible, start bringing it on the next weeks if you need a Bible. We have free Bibles out by our welcome desk out there. And then there's also a daily devotional called the Daily Bread, a little story, scripture, prayer for your day. Grab both of those on your way out. I love to see those disappear. And so uh, this whole area of joy, right? And it is so needed today. Joy full, right? And so because we're going to be looking at the whole area of joy in our lives over the next six weeks, we have to start with a definition. And so the biblical definition of joy in the book of Philippians in the Greek is kara. And it's this idea of rejoicing. It's this idea of gladness. But it's this idea as well of this consistent, everyday pattern of joy. It's this state of being that although life is all over the board, you have this consistent pattern of joy, this underlying foundation that it's okay. It's going to work. God is with me. He is for me, not against me. And although everything else is going on, I can maintain. Probably the best part of this definition I like is the definition of joy as a calm delight. A calm delight. Regardless of what's going on, right? A calm delight. And so this morning as we start this series, I want to ask you where your joy level is at. Is it full? Are you joy full? F-U-L-L? Or where is it at? So I got a, a joy meter up here. Joy-o-meter up here. All right? So obviously on this end, no joy. How many people have no... No, I'm not going to ask. You know, not going to ask for hands in here or whatever and that kind of stuff. But uh, how many of you know no joy? Well, I got a bit of joy, a little joy. I got some joy. Well, I got a lot of joy. I have great joy or joyful. I mean, are you, when it comes to the whole area of joy, are you more on E or are you more on full, right? Where's your joy tank at this morning? Where is it at? Oliver Wendell Jr., Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., was from 1905 to 1935 on the Supreme Court. He was one of the justices. And because of his work, because of his wisdom and his wit, he was considered one of the greatest justices to ever serve. At one point of his life, Justice Holmes explained his choice of career by saying this, 
I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like an undertaker. And I think that statement is true for a lot of Christ followers today, that we live life like maybe an undertaker, not that undertakers don't have joy or this or that, but in his day, his perspective of clergyman or undertaker, whatever, is like, man, they are not happy people. They're not joyful people. They're grumpy. They carry a frown on their face. They smile little. They have little sense of humor at all or don't like fun. They crush it, whatever it is. But his perspective, when he was looking at career-wise, was like, man, I would have gone into ministry, but all the clergymen I came in contact with were like, whoo, sourpusses, right? And I think at times, that's how the world views us. Boy, you Christians, you're just like sourpusses. I mean, you come into the room and you just suck the air out of it, you know? Never see you smiling. You always got to be judging something. What, whatever, right? And I'm just challenging us. You know, where is our joy at when it comes to day-to-day living? You know, a lot of times when we're desperate for joy, we seek joy in all kinds of places, right? We buy possessions to fill our joy tank. We go on vacations or quick weekend getaways, or we try to fill them with different relationships that maybe aren't always positive. Or we eat a lot of chocolate, right? You know, I mean, and lately I've been wanting to eat a lot of chocolate. You know, what do we do with that? But none of these can provide this lasting, underlying, consistent, calm delight that the Apostle Paul is talking about in the book of Philippians here at all. So joy is not this feeling of happiness that happens with a quick event. Again, joy is this underlying, consistent, calm delight. And it's found, I believe, only in relationship with Jesus that regardless of what takes place in life, that we can have this consistent level of calm delight, this joy that is the foundation of our souls, regardless of the season that we are walking through. And so in this series called Joyful, we, and so this morning I want to take you through the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to start with the background. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul had visited the city of Philippi and the church on his second missionary journey. 
And there's a map up here of where Philippi is. You can sort of see Rome. And if you just, you know, head to the right, Philippi is right up there. It's sort of modern day Macedonia, uh, where it's located today. And uh, Paul spent three months with the church in Philippi. And he is now writing them from prison, either in Rome or Ephesus. And he's not writing them because there's a crisis going on in the Philippi church or anything like that. A lot of his other letters, like the letter to the church of Ephesus or Colossae or to the church of Corinth, were written because there was a crisis going on in the church or there was false teaching going on. But Paul is writing this letter because he is so encouraged And he is writing this letter showing his affection for the people at Philippi because they have brought him so much encouragement and joy because of their support of him while he is in chains, in prison. They supported him financially. They supported him physically by sending people to encourage him. And they walked alongside of him during these difficult days. And so he's writing this letter out of affection, expressing to them how he has learned to be joyful regardless of the seasons of life. And so it's interesting that as Paul is writing in prison, in chains, and prison back then was not happy-go-lucky. I mean, prison now isn't happy-go-lucky. But back then, some of these prisons, most of them was a hole in the ground. They were underground in the dark. And they were not places where you were well-fed, well-clothed, and well-taken care of. The Roman government was not going to put money into their prisoners. And typically, they were there to die. But in this situation, and because of the encouragement and support from the Church of Philippi, throughout his letter, he refers in one manner or another to the word joy as his demeanor. That's where his soul is at, that he is joyful, even in prison, even in chains, even with the thought that any day I could be executed. And so how can this be? I mean, how can this guy do this, right? It's amazing. Well, I believe that Paul, in these first 11 verses, give us why he can be joyful, stay joy-filled. And I believe he gives us this picture of the alternator and the battery. You see, when you go buy a battery in the store for your car, your boat, RV, or whatever, and you put it in the RV, the boat, or the car, if you just put it in and you do not connect it to the alternator, that battery comes with charge. It's charged up, right? Maybe you could say it's joyful. But, If you don't connect it to the alternator, 
when you start driving and you're hauling something or you're going up some big hills or whatever, that battery's charge is going to be challenged. Why? Because of life stuff. And the charge is going to start to deplete and decrease. And eventually, it is going to hit empty. And that can be, this battery can be a picture of our joy in our life. That, hey, yeah, we can say, I'm joyful, but if it is not connected to the alternator, and what Paul is going to describe in the remaining verses in Philippians 1, 1 through 11 to us, our joyful life is going to be depleted. It's going to go down. In order for the battery to continue to work and stay joyful with the hills and the valleys in life, the weather that comes at it, the towing of stuff, whatever, it needs to be connected to the alternator, which continues to fill it with the charge or with the joy. And so Paul gives us three sources, or what I would say alternators, that he has experienced in his life that keeps his joy battery full. And the first one that he explains to us in the next verses is the backing of others. The reason that he can stay joyful is because he has the backing of others. He has others around him. This is what he says in verses 3 through 5 and verse 7 and 8. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, listen, I know in my life that some people who remember me, they don't thank God. I mean, I mean, there are people in my life who I remember, and I'm not like, thank you, God. Thank you. If I'm honest. Seriously, Right? But here Paul is saying, man, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Man, Paul has this joy. Why? Because he has the backing of the Philippi church, these individuals who love him and bring joy into his life. They are his alternator and keep his joy battery filled. He says in 7 and 8, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with affection of Christ Jesus. Wow. I mean, these individuals have poured into Paul's life and he has helped him to maintain being joyful. Yesterday, as Pastor John said, the room was filled with 100 guys. And a hundred guys that they didn't know everybody. Guys sitting around table didn't know everybody. There were guys around my table I had never met. There were guys in our four breakout sessions that I had never met. But in those breakout sessions, we were talking about guy stuff. 
real life stuff. And guys were opening up, laying it down on the carpet. And we were not alone. I don't know of many men who walked out of this door yesterday that were not joyful. They were challenged because as men, we have work to do through Jesus Christ in our life. But the men yesterday were encouraged. Why? Because they had the backing of other men around them. And that filled them with joy. They are not alone in walking through their life stuff as men. We are better together. It's huge. We need one another. And that's what Paul is saying here. And that's why he has such affection for the people of the church of Philippi as he's in chains in Rome or Ephesus. And he's saying, I'm still joyful. Why? Because you got my back. You are with me. You are for me. I love the picture we get in the book of Exodus, Exodus 17, of this this whole idea of the need for others, right, in our life. And how the need of others helps us to overcome our challenges or the fight in our life. In Exodus chapter 17, Moses calls Joshua to go out and fight the Amalekites. But Moses doesn't send Joshua out on his own. He tells Joshua that, hey, as you are out fighting, I am going to be up on the hill supporting you. And as I raise my hands, God will give you victory. But we see in the story that the battle is long. It's all day. And Moses gets tired. But yet there is Aaron and another man, her, who are with Moses to encourage him and uphold him so that eventually Joshua can win the battle. Let me read you this short story. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. We've all been attacked in this room. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Now as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites, they were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, They, meaning Aaron and her, took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Do you see that awesome picture? And how Moses says, hey, I'm going to be on the hill. I'm going to have your back. And as my hands are raised, you're going to have victory. But he's human. And he can't keep his hands raised all day long. And so Aaron and her come alongside Moses then. And each takes a hand and holds it up for the rest of the day. So that 
Joshua can have victory. Moses can have victory. And ultimately, the nation of Israel. When we are walking through stuff in life, and our joy battery in our life is being challenged because of the hills or the weather or what's ever coming at us, the Apostle Paul is saying, man, you need to be connected to the alternator of others so that you can stay joy-filled through your journey. You know, it's so interesting to me. Recently, I was just looking at the percentage of team sports to people that do individual support, uh, team individual sports, and the statistics behind it. And they say that, obviously, the majority of people do team sports. And when they studied anxiety and stress in athletes, that individuals who are doing individual sports have twice as much anxiety and stress as those who do team sports. Why? Because they're alone. They're alone in the battle. And I'm not saying that's this negative, but the fact that their stress and anxiety is twice as much because they're in the battle alone as opposed to those who do team sports. And I would say that is probably true in our own lives. If we decide that, hey, I'm going to do life individually, I guarantee that we will have probably twice as much anxiety and stress as opposed to doing it as a team sport life. That's why the Apostle Paul encourages us so much in Hebrews chapter 10 to meet together in the flesh and not forsake it to come together as you have this morning. He says this in verses 24, 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Ah, Who needs church? Come once in a while, right? But encouraging one another, why? And all the more as you see the days approaching. I mean, days are getting tougher, right? We can just see it in our world. People's joy levels are being challenged. Why? Because they're not connected to others. People aren't attending church as much. The average is once a month. That's the average attendance, once a month. So 12 times a year, connecting with the family of God. But Paul's saying, hey, we need to get together. So we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. So we can encourage one another. So that we can fill each other's joy battery. And regardless of life stuff, stay joy full. F-U-L-L. Keep walking it. It was interesting when I was doing my dissertation for my doctoral program. My whole dissertation was on this whole idea of presence and touch. And how presence and touch is so critical in growing as individuals and growing the church. And when I talk about presence and touch, I'm talking about being around God's people within four to six feet or whatever. Being around them. And then touch, meaning appropriate touch. Coming up to someone, putting your hand on their shoulder. Hey, how you doing, buddy? You know, hey, I 
I heard about that tough thing, praying for you, and just this physical touch and how critical it is and how God shows us in his word how he lives out presence and touch and how we need it for our lives. And so this whole idea is that they had this study called passive sociability. And passive sociability describes those who are alone in public. Meaning that if I would just go to the Starbucks and grab a cup of coffee and I'm reading, and I'm not meeting with anybody, I don't know anybody, people are coming in and out, or I go to the park, I'm sitting on the bench and just enjoying nature and people are coming by and in and out. They're just, I'm at the mall, I'm shopping alone, but I'm at the mall, I don't know anybody, I'm walking around, that our physiology, our endorphins, change radically in that setting as opposed to being home alone. The fact that, yeah, I'm alone at Starbucks, in a sense. I'm alone in the mall. I'm alone at the park. But yet, because I'm around people, people, period, the whole aspect of my body, my soul, my endorphins changes as opposed to me sitting alone at home. You know, so that, I mean, God created us for each other. And so Paul is pointing this out and he says, hey, I can stay joyful because I have the backing of others. That's why I have so much joy, Church of Philippi, because, man, you have my back. And then he goes on from there and he talks about the second area that brings him joy. And the second area is the backing of God. He says in verse 6, being confident of this, meaning, hey, I'm totally confident. You know, this is a 10 in my life. That he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, what brings me joy in my life as well, what keeps me full in my life as well, is the fact that God is at work in you and in me. And he will bring it to completion in the final days, whether he returns or I die. He'll bring it to completion. I'm confident this, that he who began the good work in you is going to bring it to completion. He is at work in you daily. And so when it comes to God's work in the Christ follower and us here this morning, there's sort of three phases of God's work in our life. When we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, what happens is justification takes place. We are made right before God. We are made just before him. He sees nothing wrong in our life. There's a story of a man who went on vacation to England. And so he had his Rolls Royce shipped by boat. He, he had it shipped from England over to Europe, where he was going to take vacation. As he was driving around Europe, the Rolls Royce broke down. And so he called the company and he asked them, what should I do? And the company flew over a mechanic from Rolls-Royce who fixed his car and said, okay, go on with your vacation. The guy flew back to England. 
When the guy got back from his vacation, he was wondering, boy, I wonder what that bill's going to be like, right? Rolls Royce, you know, flying him over, back, that kind of thing. And so he contacted the company and said, hey, you know, just call him about the bill. And this was their response. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. That is justification. That is how God sees us. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. He has justified us. He has made us right before God. So that's what takes place when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then we have the sanctification process, which is God changing us to look more like his son Jesus and less like us. It's like a remodeling project that we've all done at home, where we're remodeling the place, making it look different, right? And we can always see the big things, the big changes that God does in our life and that we do in our remodel project. But he wants to do it until completion, until either we take our last breath or he returns, And a lot of times, sometimes as Christ followers, when we've been in relationship for God for a while, we don't continue to invite him in to do the little stuff and to finish it off, right? It's sort of like my first kitchen remodel that I did. Man, I did all the big stuff and people could say, wow, that wall's gone and you did all this stuff. But when it got down to the little stuff, I never finished. You know, the trim, the little foot trim, the trim, you know, those kind of things. And, and every time you kept looking at it, you said, oh, that's right, I got to get the trim. Three years later, you know, I got to get that trim, you know. <laughs> but that whole sanctification process, man, he wants to put a filter in our lives, take out the old, bring in the new. And then the last piece of the journey, as it says, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion, is the glorification. When we take our last breath or Jesus returns, We are glorified, meaning we are made perfect, fully, because we are now with him in his presence. And so Paul is saying, man, you can have joy. I can be joyful. Why? Because the God who created us and who we're in relationship with is continuing to do his work in us regardless of how it looks. And so Paul is saying, man, if you want your joy battery to stay full, make sure you have the alternator and the backing of others. Make sure that you're connected to the alternator of your God, Jesus Christ, so that you can be joyful. And then lastly, he talks about the backing of prayer as the last alternator. He says in 9 through 11, and this is my prayer. So he is praying for them. They are praying for him that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul is praying for them that their love would increase, that their discernment of what is best for life, 
doing the next right thing, that their righteousness would be out ahead of their decisions, and that it would produce incredible fruit. Man, when we are doing the next right thing, when righteousness is out ahead of us, we have joy. We have peace. We're not living in guilt or shame. And Paul is praying for them. And the church is praying for him. And because of that alternator of prayer being connected, he says, I am joyful. Even in chains, even in Rome or Ephesus, I am joyful. Why? Because I have the backing of others. I have the backing of my God, Jesus Christ. And I have the backing of prayer. The power that comes. Why? Because I am not connecting to the world with my needs. I am connecting to the almighty God. And there it is. That is how Paul is saying he was able to stay joyful because he had the alternator of others, God, and prayer connected to his life. I have a graph of my life that I drew out the other day on the screen. Life stuff on this side, right? And the years of my life over here. So 61, I'll tell you, right? But I hate to, you know, blow your bubble a little bit there, but life is not up and to the right. Life is pretty much the black. It is all over the place, right? But what I've found like the Apostle Paul is that the red line is my joy. That regardless of life stuff, there is this undercurrent, this foundation, this cinder block foundation of calm delight. Why? Because I have been able to maintain joy because I'm connected with others. I'm connected with Jesus Christ. And I have so many other people praying for me. And I encourage that in your life as well here this morning. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you don't have him as your alternator who is filling your life with joy and security and eternal life, then please visit with me afterwards. I'd love to introduce you to him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you for your word. It is so good for us today. And Lord, I pray joy and the fullness of joy over each one here today. And I thank you for us gathering together. And so bless each one in your holy name. Amen.